Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Behind the Headlines, a brand new podcast from The Independent. I'm David Marley, and in each episode, we'll be digging deeper into the stories that matter, speaking to our correspondents and other experts to help us better understand what is happening around us. We will, of course, be talking about coronavirus as we continue to come to terms with the pandemic. But this series will cover lots of other topics too, with politics, culture, sport and more all up for discussion. If there are stories you want us to talk about, please do get in touch and let us know. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by our chief US correspondent, Andrew Buncombe. Andrew has been a journalist for 30 years and spent almost 20 of those with The Independent, reporting from many countries and covering everything from presidential elections, revolutions, 9-11 and the capture of Osama bin Laden. But last week, something shocking happened to him. For the first time ever while reporting a story, he was arrested. Andrew was covering the police closing down a protest in Seattle that had been set up in support of Black Lives Matter. While lawfully doing his job, Andrew was detained by police, shackled, jailed and assaulted by a guard while in custody. As we speak, he still has a criminal charge hanging over him for failure to disperse. Andrew's arrest has given him first-hand experience of a troubling criminal justice system and shone a light on the treatment of journalists in America where the president routinely denounces the media as the enemies of the people. Andy, it's really good to talk to you at, what, at the end of what must have been a very tough week. Hey, David, thank you. Yeah, it has been strange. It's been slightly surreal um, and very insightful uh, in a way that I hadn't expected. I mean, uh, if I'm completely frank with you, when I went down to the, uh, the site of the protest last Wednesday, um, at about eight in the morning, eight thirty in the morning, um, uh, having you know seen on Twitter that the the protest site, the so-called Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, had been cleared by police. You know, I, I was expecting just to sort of do a normal report, speak to a couple of protesters, speak to the cops, watch the mayor's press conference. Later that day, it was going to be, I assumed, uh, a pretty ordinary day. It turned out to be something different to that. 
you, you've written an incredibly powerful piece recounting your experiences. Can you just talk us through what happened when you got down to the protest site? Yeah, that's kind of you to say. I mean, within five, ten minutes of me getting there, I, I, I hadn't actually even reached the protest site. I was at the northern end of, uh, of what is called Cal Anderson Park, which is, um, it's a park on the, uh, on the, on the west side of, um, of the protest site. And I, I was literally walk, making my way around the edge of the park um, and uh, on, the, on the do not cross sign of a, a piece of police tape that said do not cross. And I was trying to take some photographs and video um, of a police officer who was on guard there, who was guarding the end of the park. He asked me to stand back and go away, stand back on the sidewalk. And I said, listen, I think I, you know, I have the right to be here. I'm a member of the press. I held up my badge. Um, he said, no, you need to go back. You can't stand there. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to cover the protest. I'm not a protester. I can't remember specifically the words that were said, but that was the engagement. He asked me again to stand back. And I said, listen, you know, I think I have the right to be here. And he said, if you if you don't, I'm going to arrest you. And I kind of, you know, I thought, well, that's going to be crazy and can't, you know, why, why is he going to do that? And I said, well, you know, you know, I said, you know, that's going to be sort of crazy for both of us. And next thing I know, he's arrested me. He's dragging me across the park with four, four of his colleagues. Um, they put my hands behind my back with quite a degree of force uh, they handcuffed me, they took my phone, they took my bag. They very, very um, notably at the time that, that stuck out, didn't let me make a phone call to anybody. And very notably, while I obliged them to read my rights, because they hadn't done at that point, I said that if you're going to arrest me, read me my rights, they wouldn't tell me what I was being charged with. So you, you had identified yourself as a journalist, which should have given you um, some protection, I believe, under the, the law that they eventually did charge you with. You were there uh, covering the protest. This, this happens. What happens next? You get bundled into a, into a police van and taken down to, this, to the police station? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty uh, astonishing. Um, a, it was astonishing that they were going to arrest me for this. And I repeatedly identified myself as journalist. And it was this strange kind of, the day looking back on it, it was this strange kind of surreal process of thinking at some point, this is like a dream. They're going to realize who I am. They're going to let me go and they're going to let me get back to the protest site and carry on doing my job. But, uh, you know, as the day progressed, uh, that didn't happen. Um, but they uh, they then put leg shackles around my ankles. Uh, they put me in a police van um, or a compartment of a police van. I had been in a police van before. They have various uh, small compartments. They have larger compartments for you know more than one uh, arrestee. And I was in a, a small narrow compartment uh, with my hands and legs uh, both handcuffed. Talk, talk us through what happened. You're taken to a to a police station where you're booked. Yeah, I was taken to the West Precinct uh, Police Station in Seattle, where I was booked. Um, they took my photograph. Uh, they then told me I was being charged with failure to disperse, which we can talk more about later if you like. But um, it's an accusation that I failed to uh, um, 
it's a it's an accusation, a charge that was leveled at all the protesters, i.e. that having been told to disperse the protest site by police, the protesters did not do. Um, they put me in a holding cell, I guess, for about an hour. Um, kept my mask on, but, you know, already at that part in the process, um, you know, any idea of social distancing was starting to, um, to, 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 uh, to, to sort of, you know, dissipate because these, uh, these arrests, I guess they, they, they ultimately sort of pulled in about 50 people and this place was, you know, rapidly getting filled up. And you were handcuffed the whole time? Uh, yeah, I was handcuffed. At this point, I was handcuffed the whole time. And I was able to, I, I want, for some reason, I wanted to see what brand of handcuffs they were. And um, so I had to sort of sit on, sit on the floor and pull these handcuffs from like from behind me so I could sort of step step through them. And I couldn't quite see because they were sort of, you know, uh, my, the writing was so small. But the guy opposite told me that his were Smith & Wesson, which was a famous gun maker, an armaments manufacturer. But um, yeah, I had these handcuffs on uh, in front of me and I had them for an hour. Um, I asked again to um, to speak to uh, my lawyer. I asked to speak to my editor. I speak asked to speak to the British Embassy and I asked to speak to uh, my congresswoman. Um, the only thing they appeared to take any interest in with uh, the... Uh, my my uh, request to speak to the embassy, um, but I don't think they actually followed up with that. So um, I was there an hour, then new handcuffs put on, more leg irons, and then a piece of chain that was wrapped uh, tight around my waist, uh, my chest. Like, you know, it's sort of um, I hadn't sort of uh, really had to think about what what this item is called, but it turns out it's called a belly chain, and it basically links the your leg shackles to your handcuffs and, you know, I guess further disables uh, you. There was a woman next to me sort of on, on the, sitting on the on a seat before we went into the second van and she um, I, she was suggesting she was an indigenous and that she a uh, woman and didn't speak English and was demanding a Navajo translator. And uh, I remember one of the guys saying, I, we think you speak English uh, perfectly well. So you're in handcuffs and leg irons. You've got a belly chain around you. I mean, it yeah. kind of, it feels, it can, if, I, if I kind of look at it in my mind, it feels like a scene from Guantanamo Bay rather than yeah. a journalist um, discovering a story. At this point, it's obviously worth remembering. You've not been charged with anything at this point. Is no. that right? I haven't been charged. Sorry, I have been charged with something. Uh Failure to disperse, which is a minor, you know, is a is a misdemeanor. It's a sort of a minor, non-violent crime. American law identifies sort of two two offences: felonies and misdemeanors. Uh, uh, felonies being uh, the more serious, um, and misdemeanors, which are sort of considered lesser crimes. And then we were loaded into another van, and we were driven off to the jail. And this was the most sort of one of the most remarkable sort of points in my day and most most disturbing in that they were speeding through the the the, the lady who i who, who said she was navajo was lying down lying down in her compartment in the van and um i was perched on this tiny little bench of a shelf trying desperately to hang on 
because they're racing through the sort of city of Seattle on the way to the jail. And I, I was thinking about Freddie Gray in uh, in Baltimore, who died uh, in police custody back in summer of 2015, and he essentially uh, died of dis- dislocated neck because he was rattled around in this police van. And at the time, I think people said, "Well, you know, how could have that been possible?" But then you're in this van, and you see sort of the way folks drive. You know, these pretty jolting vehicles, and I'm desperately trying to hang on to this kind of perch. You know, uh, this claustrophobic perch and this darn chain, this belly chain. It starts digging into my chest, and I realize that I cannot like fully exhale. You know, I'm trying to sort of calm myself down, saying, "Listen, this is all right. Don't you know? Don't get claustrophobic. You're cool. Breathe slowly." But I genuinely couldn't exhale, and I said, to the "Guys, listen, guys. I'm not trying to." say that anyone of you is putting your hands around my throat, but, you know, I cannot breathe. And it kind of felt, even then, instantly, it kind of felt weird. It felt it felt crazy. It felt obscene because, you know, this phrase, I can't breathe, has become so such a totem, a mantra, a phrase of power for the, for the Black Lives Matter movement um, triggered by the death of Eric Garner in the summer of 2014 after he was arrested by the cops in Long Island, New York, and placed into an illegal chokehold. And his final words were, I can't breathe, but again repeated or echoed um, by George Floyd, who was uh, killed while in police custody after an officer knelt on his neck for nine minutes, something captured on video that went around the world. And again, you know, he said to them, I cannot breathe. So it kind of felt crazy that I'm having to say to these cops, listen, you know, I cannot breathe, but I couldn't. And uh, I said it to them, and one of them turned around and said, uh, we think if you can speak, you can breathe pretty, you know, if you can speak, you can breathe fine. It's, in- it's incredible that that would be your experience and their reaction to your complaint about not being able to breathe properly to be so indifferent to that. It was, and I said, listen, you know, I don't know why you've got me in this van. I don't know why you've got me in leg irons. I don't know why you've got me in this belly chain. And one of them said, well, you know, we get people who try and make a run for it. One of the themes that became sort of, uh, that emerged that day was that there are a set of rules and procedures and that once that, process starts it's very hard to break out of it and i remember reading about what happened to the african-american journalist from cnn who was arrested uh in minneapolis you know he he was arrested live on air saying look guys you know i will move back tell us where you want to go and they arrested him didn't arrest his, his white counterparts two streets over and it took you know the head of uh turner news to get onto the governor's office saying listen you know, you didn't get let this guy out, and they did so. But it just became very apparent to me that once I was in the system, I wasn't going to get out until the system was done with me. You know, I had to go through this kind of ridiculous process. Well, I'd like to come on to talk about the kind of the the experience of other journalists as well as you raised with a guy from from C- CNN. But first, let's just get to the end of of your story. So you're taken, you're take, you're transported to uh, the jail in Seattle. Mm-hmm. In the back of the van with the belly chain and and the, and the leg irons and everything else. And what happens when you get to the get to the main jail? Yeah, well, momentarily, I think this is going to be the moment. You know, that that they see they see the light and they clock that I'm a journalist. I again, tell the woman who's checking me in. This is King County Sheriff's Department by this stage. That's sort of uh, various law enforcement sort of bodies in the U.S. 
So in addition to the Seattle uh, Police Department, you have the King County, which is the area that sort of includes uh, Seattle. They have their own sheriff's department, police department. They run the jail. I said to them, I'm, I'm a reporter. They said, well, okay, we'll sort all that in a minute. You'll get your phone calls in a minute, blah, blah, blah. But first, and they said, we're going to take these leg irons off. I said, great. But then they said, we need you to go and like take your clothes, uh, go and get undressed. We need you to put on this red prison uniform. I said, why Why on earth do I need to put on this red prison uniform? Like, I'm not a terrorist. I'm not an armed robber. I'm not. I'm a journalist. You've, re- you, you've charged me with failure to disperse. Do I really need to wear this? But there was no getting out of it. And um, the impact was immediately sort of striking, very disorientating, very disempowering, kind of felt out of place, felt weird, uh, almost started to feel guilty. And, you know, I have to assume that's a, you know, a deliberate thing. Thing That's what that's how they want you to feel. They went then went through about two hours to process me. Uh, that another sort of um, highlight if you will, in the day was that as they were processing me, the first woman claimed she couldn't uh, understand my accent and thought I was uh, making fun of her or being condescending when I sort of assured her I wasn't and that um, try to spell my name again. Uh, and she said to me, you need to get back in the cell. I was leapt on by a guy, a prison guard, who yanked the back of my jacket with real force, such force it dug up into my Adam's apple so hard that um, the next morning I, I couldn't speak properly and I, he threw me back in the cell. So um, an hour later, they said, we're going to give you another chance. So then they, uh, another woman sort of managed to get my name down and spelled me correctly and my date of birth and fingerprinted me, mugshotted me, uh, and then put me in a, in a holding cell. So it's worth just just, just reiterating. When, when, when the guard grabbed hold of your jacket and and, mm. and- tightly to to right into your into your throat you weren't mm. you weren't resisting you weren't mm. refusing any of their instructions you were simply trying to uh, communicate with the woman who's taking your name and when she said time for you to go back to the cell this guy just grabbed you basically he grabbed me from behind and um uh, it was witnessed by a bunch of people whose names i was able to write, note down but most um most uh, usefully to me by um, a protester who was there, who, who was watching it. And I sort of subsequently just bumped into her by pure chance the next day um, at the police station when we both get our belongings. She said to me, no, you were standing there trying to tell this lady your name and you were trying to hold on to the counter. And this guy just came up from behind you and pulled on your neck and sort of threw you in there. And there was no conversation. There was no sort of discussion. And then you put back in the, the, the back into a cell and held mm. there, uh, held there for, for, for how much longer? And how did the rest of it unfold? I'm guessing this was one thirty-two. One of the most sort of uh, one of the notable things about this time was that there are no clocks in the jail. Again, I think this was deliberate. They want people to lose track of time. Put me in a cell that kind of um, that variously filled up between by sort of different people from you know at its minimum there were four. At the end of the day, there were 11 people in there. Again, another major issue of concern was the coronavirus, because as we know, there are jails from San Quentin to Rikers Island that have become hotspots for the for COVID. And in this jail, there were stickers from the Centers for Disease Control pasted to the window saying, uh, do everything you can to avoid contracting the coronavirus, wash your hands regularly. Uh, 
enact social distancing. But ridiculously, we've been forced into this cell. The, the only means to wash one's hands were this kind of tap, a drinking kind of tap, really, above a filthy open toilet. There was no soap, there was no towel, there was no hand sanitizer. Half the people in the in the cell were not wearing masks. They chose not to. You know, I certainly wasn't going to get involved in a in some kind of fight to try and make people wear them. So I kind of try and kept to myself. Eventually, sort of later in the day, requested some soap from the prison authorities, which they gave me. And it was in the cell that I finally got to make uh, the first of my three phone calls. And 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 tell us the, how the rest of that then followed, because there were other incidents, weren't there, where. There was another protester, Kai, who you write about, who was threatened in, in front of you, adding to this kind of general feeling of, uh, of, of menace around you. Absolutely. I, I'll just tell you very quickly about the phone call. These phones are stuck to the wall. There's no handset. You just have to sort of talk into the wall and you have to sort of tap in a series of uh, dialing codes and hash numbers to get through and you're allowed three phone calls. So I'm thinking, oh, heck, my wife doesn't know where I am. She'll think, Something's happened to me at the park. I call her and the call goes through. And of course, every recording uh, is preceded by this thing, this message that says, this call is coming from a United States correctional facility. Will you accept the call? And of course, me and my wife, the last year, have been watching series like Making of a Murder and Tiger King or whatever, which start with this kind of very sort of dramatic sort of scene of, you know, this call coming from a, a correctional facility. Of course, my wife thinks that this is a, ha- a hoax, and so she uh, she hangs up. Thankfully, thankfully, the second call, which goes to Phil Thomas, the news editor in New York, he accepted the call. Um, had a chat with him, was able very quickly, to, uh, and Phil was very fantastic and brilliant. Downloaded to him what happened, asked him to call my wife. I then called her back, and uh, this time she picked up and sort of told me off of getting arrested. So. And then once I realized I wasn't getting out anytime quickly, I was going to be in there at least for sort of five or six hours. I kind of, you know, the journalistic habit kicked back in. And I'm thinking, well, look, they didn't let me go to the park and do my report, but I can sort of try and make the most of being in here. So there was a piece of pencil in the cell. And I sort of grabbed this and tore it from scraps of paper and started writing down everything I saw, everything that happened to me and the name of everyone I could get and their phone numbers to get back in touch with them later. So I was able to write down the names of the guards. I was able to write down the names of my cellmates. And uh, and so I have a pretty good uh, um, um, con- contemporaneous record. One of the things I noted was this young guy called Kai, a young African-American guy who'd been very helpful in actually helping me use the phone call. And he said that he'd just been threatened by one of the female guards, um, a woman who actually checked me in, um, and uh, he'd said that she told him if he, if he didn't take his hands out of his trousers, out of his pants, she was going to punch him in the head. And it was like, you know, heck, you know, really? So, uh, and then moments later, this, this woman appears in the cell, and one of the protesters says to her, hey, yeah, our friend says you threatened to punch him in the head. And she said, yeah, that's right. You know, I don't like people with their hands in their pants. And he then, this Guy said, uh, "This woman, can we, can I have your badge number, please?" And a moment later, she came back with this post-it note on which she had written her name, her badge number, and like a smiley emoji. And it was a kind of like you know a, a rather sort of sharp middle finger. That I I can do whatever I want. You can't touch me. Here, have my name. Do do what you want with it. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're a white guy, so perhaps your experience, even though it sounds terrible, was different to um, the experience of a lot of black Americans who've, uh, who have been, who find themselves in the criminal justice system. You say that when you were eventually released, you were talking to other people who were being released, who were, had previously been unable to post bond, you were able to get, get bail because you didn't have a criminal record, um, and had found themselves stuck in jail for, for months and even a year um, awaiting trial. One of the fault lines for America's racist uh, society uh, and its sort of racial underpinning, the structural racism, if you like, that I think so many people I point to uh, and identify, you know, runs right through the criminal justice system. People of color are vastly overrepresented, uh, both in terms of uh, the numbers of arrests. Um, the numbers charged, and also with conviction rates and sentencing lengths. And so uh, throughout this system, you have, you have a, a system in which people of color, African-Americans, Latinos are vastly overrepresented. I think you quote one, 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 one figure, which is for, for King County, which is specifically where you, were, where you were arrested, which is a report from 2016, which showed that half of youths in detention were black whereas the black population of the county is only 13%, which, which goes to kind of show that, that disparity. Yeah, and I think sort of um, the Brennan Center, which is a great organization here in the US that works on things like criminal reform, they, they, they told me that people of color bar account for 32% of the population generally, but 50% of all prisoners. And um, they say that the United States although it accounts for just 5% of the population in the world, it has uh, 25% of all those incarcerated. You know, it's around 2.2 million at the moment, and 95% of those uh, are for nonviolent offences. And so, yeah, um, people of colour are vastly, vastly different experience to what I have. I'm a middle-class, middle-aged white guy with a press badge. Um, once they re- once 
you, once it got it had got into the system that I had a phone number an address and a job essentially I was able to get bail you know on my own reconnaissance as they call it um I didn't even need to pay a bond others were you know far less fortunate and sort of there are hundreds you know there are millions of Americans who 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 are who fill the country's jails simply not because they have you know the, they've served their time but they cannot pay pay the bond they cannot pay the bail it's just obscene so eventually after some more hours you're released but you're released with this charge of failure to disperse still still hanging over you and at this point you're waiting for a for a letter from the courts to give you a time and a date to to show up and and face those charges yeah, the Independent's been very supportive, I must say. Uh, and I'm not, not just saying this because it's the Independent podcast, but it has been. I've, um, I've been working with a lawyer here in Seattle who's been great. He's representing me. He uh, is trying to figure out what has happened. He told me yesterday um, that the charge is a Seattle municipal code. Um, I initially thought it was a state law, but it very specifically states that it doesn't apply to journalists in all but the most exceptional circumstances, i.e. if I had been trying to stop that that officer from dispersing people, uh, the law might have been applied to me, but otherwise journalists are exempt from it. So um, my primary concern is I want to get these charges dropped. If they go to court, I'll certainly plead not guilty. I also want to have my criminal record, uh, which I didn't have before, uh, excised, expunged. Going forward from that, we're currently considering what the next best step forward is in terms of how to ensure this doesn't happen again, right? I mean, I wrote this story uh, about myself, but I really tried to make it not about me. It was really about the system and about the system works and the way that people fall through the cracks. And I kind of think that it's pretty behoven on us to say, listen, this isn't right, this is wrong, and to call it out. And at some point, you know, perhaps it's going to be time to sort of to say to the King County Jail, listen, you know, we want to make a formal complaint. What you did to our reporter was wrong. Seattle Police Department, again, we think, you know, you charged this guy, you arrested this guy incorrectly, and you charged him with a charge that doesn't apply to him. And so I think that's something that's yet, yet to be decided. But at the moment, uh, the charges are still pending. Technically, they haven't actually been filed, even though I was charged and booked. Um, in, in the technicalities of the system, um, I'm told I, the charge is still pending and I, it will be a decision that the city prosecutors have to make about whether they want to proceed with that charge. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, you've, you've been a journalist for, for a long time and found yourself in lots of dif- different situations, not always safe situations, clearly. How do you feel after going through this experience? Yeah, it's a good question. And um, uh You've you've um, you've lived in America for, for at different points in your career, so you're you know you're not you're not new yeah. to the states. You've lived there a long time. Yeah. You set your life up there. It's just not what you would expect to happen to you when reporting in America. Well, that's very true. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I I have had yeah I've had this amazingly lucky blissfully sort of privileged life of being a reporter which is you know what I wanted to do as a kid and I've lived lived the life I wanted to it's been an absolute blessing and a dream um and I've spent on and off 20 years in the U.S. my wife's here from here 
And this is my second assignment here. I've been to 50 states and I've kind of uh, covered big events, protests and what have you. I wasn't expecting to get arrested here. I wasn't expecting this at all. Um, I didn't go out to get arrested. I see some people on social media have said that, you know, I was going out looking for a story. Well, I, I certainly was looking for a story, but I wasn't looking for this one. I was surprised by it. I was also surprised by the way in which the media was retreated covering other protests. And, you know, one looks at what happened to the guys outside Lafayette Square, which is outside the White House, when the President Trump wanted to go to the, go to the church uh, for the photo op, and people were tear gassed or chemical irritant, as the sort of uh, the cops say it was, not tear gas, but it's the same thing. People were kind of punched in the face with like shields. They were sort of pushed back. People got kind of trampled. And, you know, to, to, to see that outside of the White House, I think is very startling. And the American police have a pretty inglorious record of the way they deal with protesters. We've, you know, you can see pictures back from the sort of, the civil rights era to before and sort of being present at lynchings and you know even even bombing parts of uh, Chicago in the eighties, just crazy stuff. I don't think what we have seen <clears throat> is the amount of abuse that journalists have got um, and her hassle. And of course, I think that takes us very neatly to um, the headline on the story um, about how it's happened in Donald Trump's America. And people, a number of people on social media have said, well, you know, they pointed out correctly that Seattle is a Democratic-controlled city and that the uh, state of Washington is also democratically controlled. How can you sort of associate this with Donald Trump? And listen, you know, one could make that argument, but I think the, 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 I think the purpose of the headline, and I saw the headline before it was put on the piece, and I, I thought it was good, and I, you know, I stand behind it, is that, you know, this happened in Donald Trump's America. Things don't happen in a vacuum. Things sort of exist in a context. And we know that Donald Trump, since he was elected, before he was elected, he's gone out of his way to demonize the media, to call us the worst things, uh, to call us scum and nasty and an enemy of the people. You've seen this uh, at briefings at the White House when he gets into sort of terrible rows with uh reporters from the White House press pool, particularly women, um, you know, comments that are essentially racist and just rude and aggressive. And I've been, and uh, he also does, does it, of course, at his rallies where he, where he sort of roars up the crowd, points the media and says, these people are terrible, everyone boos. Now, I, I reckon I've been to about 10 or 12 rallies of Mr. Trump uh, since 2015 onwards. And, you know, the first time you sit there, you kind of think this is almost like sort of pantomime, everyone's booing and, you know, I think this is part of the game. But then you realise as it goes on, this is very serious. This has impact. This guy is hugely influential. And when you go out to speak to people at, the, uh, at these events, you hear them repeating him. And my, whenever I, I love going to Trump rallies and I love going to talk to people there, my prime primary thing is to try and understand what motivates people. It's easy for Trump critics and it's easy for, you know, activist journalists, if you want. It's easy for progressives to sort of demonize Trump supporters. And I never do that. I never try to. I want to understand what motivates them. This is a guy 
whom you know I knew first knew from The Apprentice, and suddenly he's the presidential candidate. Now he's president. What is it that attract you find attractive about him? And you know, I don't want to call those people idiots. I, I genuinely want to understand what motivates them. Lots of things that Trump says, especially his racist stuff, I find really reprehensible. But I can see that other aspects of his personality might be appealing. So I, I want to know what motivates these people, why they're at the rally. So, I, you know, I want to talk to them. But they say, oh, um, you know, you're fake media. I'm not going to speak to you. And I always, my, my drop back is, listen, I'm, you know, I'm a journalist from England. I'm from uh, the Independent. You know, I might live in Seattle, but sort of, I've, you know, come down especially to speak to you guys. I want to, if I wanted to sort of do fake stuff, I could just watch it on TV. And invariably, you know, you chat to them and you get to hear their stories and, you know, you, you get this insight and it's always very interesting. But you're also aware very much that that layer, you know, the words that they say are the words he says, you know, fake news. You're just going to tell lies. You're going to you're going to stitch up the truck. You know, you're going to stitch up the president. It's all it's all rubbish. As the the Trump rhetoric will undoubtedly ramp up in the coming months as we run up to the election. How does that make you feel about the role of journalists and and even kind of yourself and being back out on the road, which no doubt you will be in the run up to, to polling day? Does your confidence take a knock after an experience like like you've been through? It does. And um, this whole right of experience is pretty upsetting. I think the word we, we, we'd use is triggering because you're sort of going over uh, events that happened to you. I even found it upsetting looking at some of the images of uh of the Seattle police. I found it pretty disturbing looking at some of the the video of them in action. One of the things I was pretty uh, keen to do as soon as I could after this was to sort of try and get back on the horse a little bit. And last weekend, I put on my face mask and cycled around the uh, the perimeter of the park where, where the that had been cleared. And I didn't stop to talk to anyone. I, I, I intentionally didn't sort of make any attempts to do interviews. But I did see the cops there and I sort of wished them all a happy July 4th and they all wished me a happy July 4th back. But I thought that was a sort of, you know, a good way of breaking through uh, any nerves or anxiety I may have done. I you know, certainly felt a lot better for it. It was pretty cathartic. So, yeah, it, it, I, it was upsetting. I'm not going to try and pretend it wasn't. Annie, thanks so much for talking us through that. I know you're too modest to, to quote your own work. But you, as they say, you've written this incredibly powerful piece, which I would encourage everyone to read, uh, about the importance of journalism to an informed democracy. And you, you say in your piece that journalists must show up either literally or else in spirit and commitment and focus. And you write at the end, our job is not to disperse, our job is to be present, uh, which seems like a very good sentiment on which to end this episode, this first episode of our new podcast series. So Andy, thanks so much for talking to us and taking the time to to talk through what was obviously a very disturbing and worrying experience. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. Uh, if you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, please do get in touch on email at behindtheheadlines at independent.co.uk. Uh, You can read more from Andrew and from all of our correspondents on our website, independent.co.uk, and in our downloadable daily edition app. Uh, If you want to support our journalism by contributing or subscribing, details are available on our website. Thank you so much again for listening, and please do join us again next time.